Hi there, this is Watchin, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for Black women on the corporate climb. In this episode, you meet Maneka Turnbull. Maneka is Vice President, Community Health and Economic Impact Officer for Healthcare Service Corporation, which is the parent company of Blue Cross and Blue Shield plans in Illinois, Montana, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Texas. In her role, Maneka is responsible for developing strategies, establishing community initiatives, and directing civic investments focused on long-term solutions to provide community health and make health care more affordable. Prior to her role leading HCSC's community health efforts, Maneka was Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for HCSC for more than three years. Prior to that, Maneka was Chief of Staff for Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois, responsible for supporting all activities of the Office of the President, including strategic planning, messaging and positioning, budget and personnel administration and coordination. Maneka has been with HCSC for 13 years. Maneka holds a master's degree and a PhD from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, where she also serves on the Board of Trustees and receives the 2016 Distinguished Alumni Award. Maneka is a graduate of James Madison University, where she was team captain of JMU's NCAA Division I women's basketball team. As you can tell from this interview, I am a huge fan of Maneka, and by the end of the interview, you will see why. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Maneka. Okay, guys, I've been trying to get this interview for like... 1200 years by 1200 years i mean like a year and a half but (laughs) but i'm so happy that we're here i am too thank you so much for joining us i feel like we have so much to talk about because your life has changed a lot and all of you people who are always asking about these work-life questions knowing i don't have any kids we will talk about that today in the (laughs) podcast um but simonica thank you thank you thank you thank you for making the time um so you have a huge job I have no idea what it is, though, right? So I know your title. So for people who don't, who aren't necessarily familiar with your title, explain what it is that you do in like very simple terms. Sure. Well, I'll first start with sharing what the formal title is. Okay. Uh, so the formal title is Vice President of Community Health. Okay. And Economic Impact Officer. So I'll I'll kind of try to break that down as best as possible. But essentially, you know, I work for Healthcare Service Corporation. Our organization is the parent company of five Blue Cross and Blue Shield plans. Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois, okay. New Mexico, Oklahoma, Montana, and Texas. Okay. And so what I have the honor of doing right, with, within our five geographies and looking at the communities that we serve is identifying kind of where, where are the, the greatest needs and gaps in care and fragmentation in the healthcare system and understanding how those gaps in fragmentation, how that then plays out in the community, right, in terms of our community health and community well-being and, and trying to understand what are those social determinants of health that causes communities to be less than healthy mm. than they should be, right? And so through all of that, it's identifying what are some, what are programs, initiatives, where do we invest dollars to help communities mm. be sustainable in terms of closing those, those like I said, those gaps, that fragmentation, those things that are related to social determinants, whether it be food deserts, mm. transportation, uh, you know, uh, nutrition, you know, nutrition, um, 
what other social determinants, um, gosh, a variety of things, right? Mm -hmm. Just general access to care, right? Mental health services, all of those things that really prevent individuals and communities at large um, from, from being less than healthy, right? And, and so that's what we look at and, and do a lot of research and analysis around that and saying where can we both be most effective to support certainly our members that yep. are, are that, that we support through through our business, but also communities at large. And that's really what I get to do is look at kind of that that broader and bigger scope to say how do we truly support communities mm-hmm. in a in a big way, right? And truly drive impact. So how do you how does someone end up in a job like that, right? Yeah. So like did you grow up in a family where you knew you were working in corporate for the rest of your life? How did this even become part of the vision? Yeah, I mean, it's for me personally, um, you know, certainly a job like this, I, I didn't from a young age, didn't grow up saying, I, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. But I, I think where it really starts is I did grow up saying I, I knew from a very early age I wanted to pursue psychology, specifically clinical psychology. So when what? I... Wait, yeah. wait. What? <laughs> How? You know, quite honestly, it really starts, I mean, everything, like as the saying goes, it starts at home, right? Mm. So um, I grew up in a family with divorced parents. Okay. So my parents divorced um, when I was 10 years old. Okay. Um, and my father uh, raised my older brother and my younger sister. Okay. And so it's something that I'm very, you know, open with talking about now. I wasn't, you know, years ago, but they divorced um, because my mother um, at the time didn't know it, um, but my mother was diagnosed is now has now been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Got it. And so back then, especially in the African American community, when we talk about mental health, right? We don't. We talk don't. About I was like, health. when do we right. talk about it? You know, we, <laughs> we don't, don't. <laughs> right? I mean, we talk about it in terms of saying we don't talk about that, uh-huh. right? There's a lot of stigma around that, and I don't want to overgeneralize, but you know, in African American community and communities of color, and I think just in general, and in, in general, there is a an overarching stigma Shame. around mental health. But I could tell you, bringing it again closer to home, um, you know, my family didn't talk about that, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and because didn't talk about it at, at that kind of community level, I think, and with my parents being younger parents, mm-hmm. didn't immediately know what was going on at that time, right? Mm-hmm. And when, as, as I got older and got, start getting more comfortable with kind of talking about my journey and my family's journey, mm-hmm. I recognized that there was, I can clearly recall from age, you know, my earliest memory to 10, my mother being a, one, one person, one way. Mm. And then from 10 on once, you know, the, the, the illness really kind of took hold. Mm. She, I remember her being a very different person, even today, which, you know, have a relationship with my mother. She is not the person that, that I remember. Right. And, and, um, she is, she is living with her, her disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's very different. And now, and because now it's it's diagnosed, it's been diagnosed, it's been treated, but to go back to your, your question, why my focus was on psychology, because, you know, as being 10 years old and entering pre-adolescent and teenage years, mm-hmm. had I just started to form a natural curiosity into why. Why is there why is there one person that I remember and now I see a totally uh. different person as she was as it was finally getting diagnosed and treated and all that was coming out. And so being able to see that, especially as a young 
female, right? Mm-hmm. And really, you know, that age, you know, preteen, teens, that's when you really need your, your, mom. your mom, right? Yeah. And so not having that person and then having this different memory of when we were really, really close yeah. up until, you know, everything kind of got torn apart. Mm-hmm. So I just, I that's what led me into psychology. I really wanted to have a deeper um, knowledge and understanding of that. And so really um, leaned into that through my college years and okay. was kind of on that um, clinical psychology track and was going to grad school um, and have a background. I have a PhD um, with a psychology background there. And so I, it was actually through grad school, when I was going through grad school, that one of my um, professors that, that worked at here at the company at the time, okay. um, she said, you know, we really need someone like you in corporate America, right? And just she saw, she saw something in me that I didn't even realize because mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you, my focus was was not on corporate America. It really was kind of to be in the clinical setting. Okay. Um, and so, you know, it's it's she saw something in me and and kind of shared why she felt you know my skills and my background and kind of who I am would benefit you know organizations and applying kind of psychology disciplines and guiding mm-hmm. principles and being able to help people and organizations in a corporate setting in a different way, right? And so still being able to apply those principles that that could be applied in a clinical practice and mm-hmm. how, you, how do you then come in and help people and organizations be well and be healthy. And so that, that's really start 13 years ago, came in and um, was doing work and doing around learning and development and organizational um, organizational design and development and adult learning mm-hmm. and really kind of applying some of those principles. And ever since then, I've just been on this kind of amazing career path with, with this organization that I'm so grateful for and proud to work for and have just led from one opportunity to the next that have landed me on where I am today. Talk to me about the mental shift that had to happen for you to pivot from I'm going to be clinical to now I'm going to be corporate. Like what, because I think a lot of times people get tied to that one idea of what it's going to look like and it's really hard to shift when another opportunity comes along. So for you, like what was that mental gymnastics that kind of happened where you're like, yeah, I can do this in this way. Absolutely. I mean, I think really the thought was, um, and it kind of goes back to, to, I have so many isms from my father, right. And kind of just lessons, um, just, from fatherhood and, and parenting, and then you know he he was my coach for years when I was growing up, and what played in my head with making that shift was the need to take a risk, right? Mm. Um, that's probably one of the the biggest things that I've carried with me both personally and professionally to not one of the things that he used to say, and I'll paraphrase, but it was along the lines of you know don't don't be afraid of failure, right? Mm. Failure, there's and we've heard the saying along the lines of there's there's growth in the struggle, right? They say so, it. They all say it. I don't yeah, know who they are, but yeah, they, they, they say it they a lot. They say it, right. <laughs> and I, I recently read something that expanded that, and the phrase was, um, don't, feel, don't fear failure, but be terrified of regret. Right? Ooh. Right? I love that. Yeah. Write, write, this write it down. <laughs> don't, don't be afraid of failure, but be terrified, but be terrified of, of regret. Right. And so even early to, to your question of how I made that mental shift, it really went back to, again, um, kind of the, the dadism of take a risk. Right. And the risk for me was because I was so focused and, and thought that I had everything, you know, I knew my path into clinical. And it, for me at that time, going to corporate was a risk because large corporate entity, how do you, how, you know, how are you going, how am I going to make an impact? I knew where I could, where I felt that I could make an impact 
you know, from a clinical perspective, because mm-hmm. that's it's very really prescribed to kind of do that and how you set on that path. Coming into a large organization, there's really nothing prescribed, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. uh, and I I also had to make a shift in terms of kind of education, how I started to steer and and you know get myself ready there, right? How do I how do I focus on things that are truly important and can add value to the organization? Um, and you talked about risk a little bit, so I think a lot of times, especially like black women, women of color, um, people don't want to take a job like yours because when you're one of a few right. and when you take a risk and make a mistake, it's on a really large stage, right? right? And right. I think the fear of being the black woman who makes this large mistake, a lot of time it paralyzes us. So right. for you, what do you? how do you think about failure? Mm-hmm. And how do you think about um, the at your level, the types of risks that are worth taking. Right, yeah. So, um, obviously, you know, we've, we've connected in the in the past, watching. So, you know, my my affinity uh, and love for basketball, right? Yeah. And so I played basketball in college. Got to give a shout-out to James Madison University, my <laughs> alma mater. Um, and I think um, going to the, the failure, being an, an athlete from a very early age mm-hmm. and um, being on various sports teams, you learn how important failure is, right? And so I think understanding the 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 value, quite frankly, and the benefit and failing and learning from that, mm-hmm. um, and knowing that you know winning at everything can be a detriment, right? Because it's you need failure puts a mirror in front of your face, mm-hmm. right? And and helps you to understand where you need to get better, what you did wrong. It forces you to reflect. On your right? character too. On your character, absolutely. And take take accountability for the part that you played in that. And so I mm-hmm. think when you couple, you know, risk taking with failure, it helps you not be it helps you not be afraid, right? It helps mm-hmm. you actually to prepare. And so, you know, but in a job setting it can be it can be different because Failure, depending on especially the culture of the organization, mm-hmm. the role that you're in, mm-hmm. the, the the stakes, right? If you fail, what does that mean? What's the domino impact? Mm-hmm. And so it could be, you know, it could be extremely stressful. It could be paralyzing almost in terms of paralyzing to even get started with something. And mm-hmm. so I think you really, as you enter something, one of the things that I've I've um, a skill I've developed since I've been in the organization is making is one kind of creating um, that kind of board of that board of directors, if you will, that personal mm-hmm. board of directors that you can, if you know you're about to enter something that truly is high stakes, right, that there is there is a, a could be a, a cost if it doesn't go right, making sure that I'm checking in with those people, mm-hmm. right, and then just understanding my own personal threshold for failure, right, mm-hmm. and what does that mean, what truly does that mean, and can I with do I feel like I can withstand that? Mm-hmm. But I, my, my guide has always been if I'm doing, if I know I'm doing the, the things that are right for the members that we serve as an organization, if I know I'm doing things that are right for the organization, that are right for me, that are, you know, ethical, that upholds our kind of our core values, then you move forward. And mm-hmm. again, making sure, you know, at the end of the day, this is still a business. So we want to make sure that leader, you know, the right leaders are in place. Mm-hmm. We go through the proper governance and all those things. But yes, I mean, from as a, um, you know, of course, I think we, and we, we grew up with that being black women, right? Because mm-hmm. while it's, it's a balance, you, you want to be able to, you know, have a spotlight sh- shined on you for the work that you're doing mm-hmm. and, and you want to, you want to get that, but you also have to know, you know, just as the spotlight shines, the light can go out as well. So what's your threshold for, for mm-hmm. doing that, right, and being comfortable with that if that happens? Um, and you talk about your personal board of directors. Um, yeah. So this is a two-part question. 
one, how has mentorship and sponsorship played a role in how you've progressed? I know you said someone saw yeah. something in you and brought you here. But two, how do you find them? I think, uh, I, I mention this all the time. So we have a group of about 400 black women who are in the I Choose a Ladder community. Yeah. And we did a survey around, everyone has a college degree. I think 75% of us have graduate degrees and like multiple. And so we did a survey of how many people could identify mentors that they had and of the people who participated three women right and these are women wow. who are working in corporations across the country wow. who are in middle management on their way up to senior management and could not identify someone within their organization or outside of their organization in a professional way as a mentor and so for those women like how do you find these women who choose to invest in your mobility throughout your sure. career you know it's variety i mean some some of it has been as simple as especially earlier on with my time uh, since I've been with the organization, was seeing a female, whether it be a female and a male, I have to say, and whether mm-hmm. it be white, black, Asian, whatever the case may be, seeing someone um, in a leadership role or even in a non-leadership role that has, is doing something that I've said, you know, that's someone that I want to emulate what they're doing or understand kind of why they have a a draw to to take action on things but yeah it's usually I would say from a mentoring perspective it's always been I've seen someone do do something or seen them on kind of a stage or a platform Mm -hmm. and really respect and admire Mm -hmm. um, them their work their how people respond to them Mm -hmm. and really just want to learn from them and so just as simple as as reaching out right Mm -hmm. because even that's that's a risk, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's what I've tried to, you know, and, and something that I've noticed if, if I felt that people were approachable, and that's something that I've tried to emulate in my leadership mm-hmm. is being approachable to mm-hmm. people because that makes a huge difference, yes. right? If people get a sense that that person is relatable, that I can have a conversation with them, that they're approachable. And, and that's, again, that's so every mentor that I've had here, um, it's usually because someone has literally open themselves up one way or another or mm. just kind of who they are, who their being is. But I, that's what I would encourage people to do. If there's someone that you see that you admire, if there's something that you really under, want to understand how that person, mm. you know, does what they do or, you know, un, understand more kind of what they what they bring, whether it's influence, whether it's presence, whether it's an actual kind of skill or a functional, you know, task that they do, it's as simple as just asking, mm. right? So much, so much by just kind of, you know, getting out of your shell and just asking the question. So you've had some distance from this now. So looking back to when you were in grad school mm-hmm. and that woman who worked here saw mm-hmm. something in you that you didn't see in yourself. Yeah. What do you think that was? You know, that's. I love that question because, you know, I think I can bullet. I've I've been told. I don't know if this was, is what it was or not, and I probably should have asked at some point. Um, <laughs> but I have been told um, that I have an infectious, positive energy that just brings people in. I right, and so that's that's verbatim. Someone has told me that, and so that's the only thing. Maybe that's something that she saw, and you know. Mm. Corporate America cannot, you know, can sometimes feel very heavy many times with certain things, and so maybe that's what she saw to say this is, you, there's there's a light that you bring that, mm. you know, that can help shine in different places within the organization. I like that. Um, so, 
you've changed, you've stayed within the same organization, but you've changed jobs yes. or different functions. Um, and now you have this huge job with an intimidating title. <laughs> However, how have you known when it's time to, how do you know when it's time to move on to the yeah. next challenge? Yeah, it's funny because sometimes, um, sometimes you don't know. And sometimes I haven't known, right? Sometimes it's some, there have been a couple times since I, that I've moved around that, Again, going back to that that uh, professor, someone knew I was ready before I knew I was ready, mm. right? Like this is, but the times where I knew absolutely knew that I was ready, it's because there was an opportunity that both excited me and scared me, right? In mm. terms of why scaring, meaning, wow, this is this is really gonna stretch me because it's really kind of out of my comfort zone. But that's when I knew it's like yes, because if if you have you know, my kind of philosophy is if you truly have ambition and desire to continue to move up and grow, you've got to stretch yourself. You can, mm. you know, you can't be status quo. You've got to, you know, really stretch and be able to, and, and don't be afraid to take on those things that are super ambitious and may seem like this is too, too much out of my, you know, out of my wheelhouse, if mm. you will, or kind of what I'm used to. And I've, I could tell you I've never failed when I've got that kind of that tingly feeling both like, oh, this, this role sounds awesome, but oh gosh, this is, this because that, that, that turns into energy and you use it as motivation and it's always worked out. But again, it goes back to also don't, when people do see something, when people know it before you know it, don't say no. I mean, mm. you know, trust that sometimes, again, people, other people seeing in you and, and for, for a person to, to come to you and say you're ready for this, even though you may not feel you're ready, that, that's, that's, that speaks volumes, especially within mm. an organization, a work setting, because that, that just doesn't happen, mm. right? Yeah, when someone sees your potential, yeah. go for it. Yeah. Um, so a lot of your job is around communication, yeah. right? Like you talk to a lot of people. Um, has your communication style had had to change as you become more senior right so you hear those stereotypes of like I don't want to be too aggressive because I don't want to be the angry black woman I don't want to be this like how do you think about communication both internally and externally um, as you have you've gotten more senior I think for me from a community communication I've I've always seen myself as a natural um, collaborator and convener and so I've to be honest I've never really um, felt kind of at at risk of being seen as that angry black woman, and that's to say, and I and I, there have been times where, especially in roles that I've had, that I've had to be direct or I've had to be stern. You know, it's I recognize, especially in some of the roles that I've had, that you know, it's not, it's not always about everyone liking you, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we all want to be liked. I mean, that's that's human nature. But there's also, given you know, roles that you may be in, you have to make hard decisions, right? And I've led teams, and that's part mm-hmm. of it too. Leading a team is both, you know, you it, it's everything comes with the good, the bad, the ugly. And everyone thinks they want to do it. Right. They've never done it. They've never done it. It's so hard. It's very hard. But you can, you can absolutely, you know, have critical conversations or deliver tough messages that even, you know, in the, in the immediate um, instance that people may not want to hear, may not like to hear, but at the same time, as long as you are communicating and you're approaching it from a position of caring, right. And that's Mm -hmm. what, that's, that's what, I take, again, going back from my um, time in sports, especially one of my coaches when I was in college, he was one of those screaming type coaches, always screaming, yelling, screaming, yelling. And he would say to us, he would say, you shouldn't be worried when 
I'm screaming at you, right? When I'm yelling at you, you should be worried when I stop. Mm. Because when I stop, that means I no longer care, right? And that was his communication style. His mm-hmm. communication was, if I'm screaming and yelling and giving you feedback and teaching you to be better, There's that means emotion. I care. If I'm not talking to you, right, that's, that's the emotion. If I'm not talking to you, if I'm not giving you redirection, that means I've given up and I'm not wasting my energy, right? Ooh. I'm not wasting my energy or using my energy to help make you better, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's, I take it from a, not to say that I walk around this organization screaming at people, but in terms of, <laughs> um, not at all, but in terms of communicating, yeah. I communicate from a from a position of caring. You know, that's how I, I lead with caring. And I think when you genuinely show people that you care about them, especially in, in whether you're delivering a good message or a not so good message, mm-hmm. people can understand that even if, like I said, in the immediate, it's tough to hear. Mm-hmm. If they know that it, you truly are coming from a place of caring, mm-hmm. that, that helps. But I think, um, but again, like I said, I've, I've definitely been in situations where I've had to deliver tough messages mm-hmm. or I've, you know, I knew that, you know, this something was going, wasn't going to sit well and it was going to stir there. But I think, um, you know, I've built kind of my reputation for one that I'm, I'm leading with facts. I think I've become, to, I'm, I'm now being seen as a credible messenger, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't have to feel like I have to put on a face or if when it comes to deliver, delivering a hard message, I have to back off of it mm-hmm. because of how someone, you know, may, may, how I may be perceived. So balancing being liked with being effective. Right. Absolutely. Got it. Um, and let's talk about hair for a little bit. This, yeah. The, your hair looks different <laughs> yes. since the last time I saw you. I feel like this is like the number one black girl struggle, right? Because <laughs> hair is such a big deal in corporate. And I think back in the day, and I yeah. feel like it might still be in this day, there was like a couple of acceptable hairstyles. So right. like the blowout, the little pixie. Right. What made you decide to cut it all off? Because yeah. now you have a TWA. Yes. And what did that thought... <laughs> What ha- what? That's just and what happened? Um, a thirteen month old baby happened, right? Okay. So part of it was you know just ease <laughs> in the morning of getting ready, right? Mm. So that's that's part of it. Uh-huh. Um, but part of it also is, I mean, for me, and I've had over the years have had many different hairstyles. Mm-hmm. I've had long hair. Mm-hmm. I've had short, you know, bobs. I've had you know shorter than bobs. I've had what you see now, which is like basically all gone it's really a combination of um just trying different things i mean in college and when i had my hair was really long my hair is super thick and Mm -hmm. so when you're playing you know sports constantly and you're constantly sweating through your hair when Mm -hmm. you have thick hair and you know it just absorbs everything so the first time i really cut my hair was in college i'm like i can't do this you got crazy schedule Mm -hmm. i just don't have time to to spend Mm -hmm. you know doing my hair and so and that was really the first time I started playing around with my hair. But I think, um, you know, and even when it, since I've been here for 13 years, I've had different styles, braids, what, whatever you name. Mm-hmm. And I think my my general focus for me has been if I am comfortable and confident in my hairstyle, mm-hmm. I'm comfortable and confident in me. And that reflects in my work, mm-hmm. right? And at the end of the day, I know, and I'm fortunate to be with an organization that I know that that's how I'm being evaluated. I'm mm-hmm. being evaluated based on my work. I've never felt like in any hairstyle that I've walked through these doors that someone's looking at me and, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to kind of keep my distance. And mm-hmm. I think because if it's something that I know, whatever the hair that I'm wearing, mm-hmm. that I'm comfortable and confident in, and I can I stand tall, shoulders are back, and that re- that reflects, it's that presence, right? Mm-hmm. And when you are putting that out there and that, that air and that presence, that it's like, okay, then you you're doing your thing and, and people respond. And do you think corporate's becoming more accepting of, because I think over the years, yeah. like you've been here 13 years, yeah. I feel like 
people you've seen more people absolutely right, wearing their hair like this is how it goes out of my head right so this is what we're gonna do today. absolutely I've I do I've seen it I mean I see it in you know in our halls right and it's and it's funny because while I have that confidence you're very it's very true I mean some of the hair cells that I see today um I didn't see those no see them 13 years ago right yeah. and so I do think it it is more of that I think so I think it's a reflection societally that people, you know, from an inclusion perspective, people are just more feeling more comfortable to bring who they truly are, mm. right, mm. into the into the work environment. Um, and you mentioned your 13-month-old daughter. Yeah. So let's talk about how you balance being a whole wife, a yeah. whole mom, and a whole executive. Like, yes. how do you how do you keep those things in check for yourself so that you feel like you're showing up as your best self in yeah. those different areas. Absolutely. You know, first and foremost, I think um, I I consciously don't try to balance it, mm. right? I make it conscious because if I tried to balance, it just, for me, there, there is no balance, right? For me, I approach it as, you know, you enter each of those stages, you know, life happens and then you I adjust from there, right? So being in, a, a, you know, an executive Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are days that being an executive wins out over being a wife. You know, mm-hmm. there right now, nothing wins out over my daughter, first and foremost. <laughs> Period. Right? Period. Because if my phone rings right now and it's daycare, Gotta go. I'm gone, right? And it's just, that's that's how it is. But yeah, there's, there's things right now that still went out over being a wife. Right? <laughs> but that's, but we've had years of that, right? Yeah. And so I have, but... Um, Going back to I, I, I consciously don't try to balance it. I mean, there are days that you know, and I, and I know that there are times that, um, you know, and we, I, I, I've been with the company long enough, and I know my role, and I know my boss and my mm-hmm. leaders that I work with. Mm-hmm. I know when okay, I need to give a little bit more over here from a work perspective, mm-hmm. um, or when I, I know when I can dial back. But I think at home. Um, you know, at the end of the day, family comes first, and that's why it's not really a balance for the mm-hmm. most part. Family, and like I said, by far, my daughter takes precedent over anything. Um, and then, like I said, I just adjust accordingly. Did you think about how having a child would impact your career, or did you fact that into your decision to have a child? Yeah. And what was that like? What did you weigh? Yeah, I absolutely did. I mean, I think, you know, I'm I'm 42, my husband's 43, so we're older parents mm-hmm. and we did. It was us, us deciding to start a family and have a child um, was very much a, you know, we wanted there were things that we wanted to kind of achieve to, to individually, right? We had our we had individual goals that we wanted to achieve to me for me, getting my PhD was one that I knew I wanted to do before I had a family. Mm-hmm. We had things that we wanted to achieve together, um, you know, as as a couple, as a married couple. Um, and so yes, waiting, we knew that we were we were going to wait. I will say, um, you know, we like I said, I'm forty two. We we started trying two years before we got pregnant. So there was that, right? We knew we were going to wait, but when we were ready to start trying, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't, you know, God had a plan. It wasn't just because we were ready when we finally said yes. Mm-hmm. He was like, okay, well, I'm on a different path for you. And so, yeah, we 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 kind of, quote unquote, I use in quotes, planned when we were going to start our family, but even our plan wasn't mm-hmm. according to plan, right? And so... Um, but what it did, I think, for us, um, you know, because we, we struggled when we started, right, and because 
you know, we were, we, we did kind of plan, if you will. I mm-hmm. think um, for us, it, it's making us wonderful parents because mm-hmm. we knew this was something that we wanted. And, and the day that she came, it was like, for us, as overwhelming and life-changing as it was, mm-hmm. We were we knew it was coming and we and because we we put so much in and and when and I'm and I'm also very you know open and public about this. Um, we went through IVF finally to get pregnant, mm. and I think when you go through all of that as a couple, especially you know her being here, we I mean we it was like you go through all of that everything that's involved in IVF, and so when she's here, we're like. All right, so so now our struggle is not to spoil her because uh, now we're just like just so happy, all to in, right? We're so happy to be here, right? Oh my through, gosh. through everything, yeah. And so, what's been the change that has like surprised you the most to yourself becoming a mom? Oh, I would say, oh, that's a great question. Um, the change that has surprised me the most, I just said this to someone this morning, as a matter of fact how much like my heart just aches with love Aww. right I've always felt myself to be like this caring and compassionate person that's where kind of the psychology comes in mm-hmm. but I've and everyone says like being a mother there's no other love and no other feeling like that and and of course when you hear people say that you're like I get it right you're yeah. it's your child the like the feeling of and maybe aches not the right word but that's the only way that I can describe it mm-hmm. for people just that the love. I mean, it's all consuming mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. They say being a parent is like having your heart walking outside of your body oh, at all yes, times. Yes. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Yes. But yeah, that's most parents are like, yeah, that's like your heart. Yes. Which absolutely. Um, so one other quick question that sure. we, because I think we, uh, we talk about this a little bit. You talk about managing people yeah. and uh, the challenge around that. What are some things that you see like young black women doing in corporate mm-hmm. that their counterparts may not be doing that could be hindering them mm-hmm. that they have no idea about? Uh, yeah, I would say that they, what I see, and I try to mentor people, right? And, mm-hmm. um, is, is, and I mentor people, again, black, white. I mean, it, I don't kind of yep. um, restrict that. Um, because I wasn't restricted from that between mentorships and sponsorships. Yeah. But I but specifically to to young black people in the work setting, not not kind of owning their accomplishments and achievements in cheerleading, if you will, for themselves. Like right? being super humble. Be yes, and being humble is good. Believe me, even where I'm at, humbly. I mean, being humble that is what gets you and that's what keeps you rising absolutely mm-hmm. but being overly humble to the point that it's like I'm going to do something and I'm just going to take back or if someone is literally because I've seen this happen someone will do work and someone else will take that work and take credit for it mm-hmm. and not give credit mm-hmm. and you know and that person that that young African-American black person mm-hmm. does you know does not you know speak it because there's a way that you you can address that very professionally, mm-hmm. very respectfully, mm-hmm. and you know, and you you have to do that because if so. If not, who are you? What would you yeah. say? Because I think that this has come up a lot where yeah. people are like, they don't have the language to advocate for themselves yeah. internally. So let's say you'd worked on a project, yeah, for months, and then it's presented and your name is taken off of it. So like, right. there's like no trace of yeah. you. Yeah. How would you? One, who would you address it with? Right. And how would you address it? Yeah, I mean, and that happened to me earlier in my career, a similar situation. Mm-hmm. And the way I addressed it at the time, so I addressed it with, at that time, my immediate boss, okay. right? And 
I I addressed it by asking a question, asking questions. And I think um, for me, I found that asking questions, when you when you approach something, especially like that from a question perspective, it's a natural invitation. You, you naturally bring people mm-hmm, in, right? Mm-hmm. Because by asking a question, you help other people as opposed to, you know, accusatory, especially if you're, and I get it, right? It's different. If someone were to do that today where I'm at within the organization, it's a different conversation. Correct. I probably still ask a question, mm-hmm. but it may be a different type of question yeah. coupled with a more of a direct statement. Okay. When you're beginning in your career, I understand. And when yeah. you're more junior, again, going back to the stakes, the stakes are a little bit higher in how you approach it. So again, reflecting on when that happened to me, it was more of a, que- a question was, you know, did I do something wrong, right? Did I miss something? Would I misunderstand? How can I how can I be a part of this group? Or, you know, did was there an oversight that I was not included on on the project, mm. right? And so it was it's it's more of a okay, let me first seek to understand, right? What and happened? then based on the response, then you could say, Well, it's my understanding, you know, it's I, I worked on the project, it was my understanding that, you know, I would be a part of being named in um, you know, the the accolades around this mm-hmm. or the the readout of this work being done but I mm-hmm. think especially if you're junior in your career asking can really help to pull people into a conversation mm-hmm. yeah yeah and being clear on what the expectations yeah. are I think a lot of times even on the front end on the fr- asking absolutely. questions on the front end yep. what your role is in the project right. and so then you can hold people accountable right. to what they told you that your role was going to be without absolutely. being like a crazy person right okay so this is a lightning round okay don't overthink it. Okay. It's literally the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. What's one piece of career advice you wish that you'd gotten earlier in your career? I would say um, be, no matter what organization you work for and or industry that you work in, be a student of your industry. Mm. Mm. Le- learn, first of all, your role. Learn your organization, but learn the industry that you're in. Mm. Um, what's the career advice that took you the longest to learn, but it's had the biggest impact on your career? That hmm. uh, you can't trust everyone. And I'm not that... allowed to ask follow-up questions <laughs> in these either. <laughs> yes, you okay. can't trust everyone. Okay. Yeah. Um, what's one book that you could read over and over again? To Kill a Mockingbird. Hmm. And then last question. So we all know that career decisions are made when you're not in the room. So what do you hope people are saying about you when you're not in the room? I hope people are saying that she adds value. And on that note, thank yep. you so Absolutely. much. I'm so, listen, it was worth the wait, right? People, this is amazing. Thank <laughs> you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. See, I told you that she was amazing. I mean, she's just someone who is a light in every space that she's in. But as you know, I like to end each episode with my top three gems that I got from the episode. So my favorite one, you heard, I stopped to take notes, is that um, don't be afraid of of failure, but be terrified of regret. That's something that I try to, you know, keep in my mind as I make decisions for what I want to do with my career. So Failure is not a big deal. Regret, on the other hand, is something to be terrified of. The second thing which I struggle with is winning at everything can be a detriment, which on an intellectual level I understand, but no one likes to feel like they lost, but winning at everything can be a detriment. And the last thing is that sometimes people recognize that you are ready before you do, and it's completely okay to trust what they see and lean into that. 
As always, if you want to keep the conversation going, connect with us on Facebook at I Choose the Ladder. And until next time, thank you for listening.